0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, King Jesus, Studying the Life and Work of
1: Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark twelve thirteen 13-27. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, Who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, believes no child, the man must take the widow and raise raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning again, and welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We are very glad that you're with us this morning. As Rev said, um, this is not the end-all be-all. For us, we live in community and on mission throughout the week in small communities we call missional communities, where we really live out the life of a disciple. But this is formative for us because all of our missional communities, I think we have 11 of them across the cities right now, they come together on Sunday morning and we are shaped and formed inside the liturgy by the gospel, by the proclamation of the word of God, by taking sacraments. We take sacraments. uh, We... uh, Participate in the Lord's Supper every week and baptism about quarterly. And so this is really formative for us. So if you're a visitor with us, we do welcome you. We thank you for coming. Uh, we didn't choose this verse because we're doing baptism. If you're trying to put the pieces together, hmm, taxes and resurrection and baptism. Uh, that's not, we didn't choose that. Uh, what we do at Sacred Cities, we preach expository sermons. That's, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible uh, we believe and we're convinced by scripture that that's the best way to preach is verse by verse. Otherwise, you're just getting what I'm into, right? Uh, whatever I'm into in the moment, I feel like I read a cool book and then I'm going I'm to preach that to you. Um, unfortunately, that's not unfortunately. It would be easy for me to do that because I read a lot of cool books, but... Uh, it's a lot more difficult, but a lot more beneficial to preach the Word of God, which is infallible, and we go verse by verse through that. And it makes uh, me do some hard work, and it makes us, you know, some scriptures that we just pass through if we're reading them, we actually have to drill down into and, and, and come to an understanding of what's going on. That's two scriptures that we're going to be taking a look at today. And we've been doing this, well, we've been doing this since the beginning of our church now, about four years, but we've been working through this Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest record of the life of Jesus in existence to the world, in the world today, okay? This was written down 15 to 20 years after um, the death and resurrection of Jesus by, uh, it was a word for, it was the... Uh, uh, interview, basically. Mark is interviewing Peter, so it's Peter's eyewitness testimony to the life of Jesus. If you ever see on the Discovery Channel and all these things, oh, someone just emailed me this week, oh, I saw this thing on Discovery Channel, and they said there's this new controversy out, and Jesus maybe married Magdalene, and all this kind of, and it was new documents. I said, yeah, 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 those new documents are 400 years after the life of Jesus. Like, those new documents at Discovery Quotes are uh, 350 years earlier, or I'm sorry, Later, whatever, more recent than the Gospel of Mark. That the Gospel of Mark is the earliest record uh, in in existence to go and study and find out who Jesus is. So we've been spending this entire year studying the life of Jesus. And one of the things that I have found out, that I have uh, kind of been revealed to me in studying this now 11 months uh, through the Gospel of Mark, is many people come to Jesus Because they find out Jesus is kind of like them. What? That's what I mean. You're really into um, the outcast. You you, you come to Jesus because you hear a message or you read something in the scriptures where you say, Jesus is a lot like that. Jesus loves people who are on the outside of society. He goes to the poor. He goes to the sick. I'm really into that. Jesus is kind of like me in that. I kind of dig this. I kind of like Jesus. Jesus. And you come to Jesus. Or Jesus is just this truth speaker, right? He's just, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he just, sometimes he can put people in his pl- in their place. And you might be like that. And you might see Jesus, Jesus is a lot like me like that. And so you come into the faith or you come to know Jesus because there's an aspect of Jesus that you, that's a lot like you and that you're into. And the Bible has a lot of things to say about a lot of different topics, okay? And you can come to Christ because you find some commonality with some kind of theme in the Bible, right? But what's interesting, we come to Christ because he's a lot like us, but we're changed by Christ when we find out he's not like us, right? So like, You're kind of like, you love the outsiders and you love the people on the fringes of society and you love to go to the parties and drink the wine like Jesus did. And Jesus got accused of being a a drunkard and a glutton. You like that aspect, but you don't like the truth. You don't like the hard edges of the truth. And Jesus did both, right? Jesus engaged the outsider and went where they were at and was called a drunkard and a glutton, even though he wasn't a drunkard and a glutton. But he also had the audacity to, audacity to say, here is the, the truth. It's not whatever you make it. It's whatever I make it because he's God, the son of God. And so where we embrace the differences of Jesus, that's where we get changed by him. And, and, and some of you who grew up in church, you need to hear that because you don't, you, you have this Bible story, Sunday school version of Jesus that agrees with all your proclivities. All the things that you have a natural bent towards. You have a version of Jesus that agrees with you, and therefore, more than likely, you might have a faith that has stopped changing you. And what's been my discovery, and I've been following Jesus now for about 20 years, is that through the study of the Gospel of Mark, one week I'm going, Yes, I love Jesus. He's kind of like me. And the next week I'm going, Ooh, that one hurt. And the next week I'm going, yes! And the next week I'm going, ooh, that one hurt. And it's coming to understand and see and study the real Jesus, who's like us but not like us, where we change. And if you have been in the church for a long time and your faith is stagnant, I would say to you, you need to encounter the real Jesus, not the Jesus of your Sunday school lessons, not the Jesus of your, like your little Jesus Bible. Those things were great, but you know, it's like a synopsis, right? It's it's kind of soft and rounded, right? The Bible stories lose their punch in a kid's story Bible, right? I hope you know this because we read like, uh, you know, the story of David and Goliath to our kids. And then we go, all right, sleep tight. And that's a story of a man killing a giant and cutting his head off. Sleep tight, (laughs) right? But they've been Bible story, you know, they've been, you know, brought down a little bit so they're not quite as violent or bloody or as scary. Now, I, I hope your version of Jesus hasn't, you know, that hasn't happened, but it, it very well might have. And today, we're going to come and take a look at this text, and we're going to see Jesus with the hard edges today, okay? We're going to see Jesus who cannot, he has got, he's got a brilliant mind, he's a logician, and he's, he's very, he can argue, all right And he's not afraid to stand up for the truth, and he's not afraid to do that. And we're going to see that Jesus today. I pray that, that it would challenge you this morning. So let me pray, and we're going to go ahead and jump into our study, and this we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 today. Father, uh, we come to you this morning, and we confess that we are not all-knowing. We are not all good, we're not all seeing, we're not in control. We're not righteous. We don't have goodness in and of ourselves. We're sinners. And we come under your word this morning because you are in authority. You are, have creator rights over us. You are God. That means you are all-knowing. You are all-seeing. You are all good and all-holy. You're not like us in those ways. And I pray this morning that you would give me uh, the mind to think and the words to speak to your people about your word and about you, and that you'd give us all ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us, that we would come to see Jesus, the only way to the Father, the only way back into a relationship with God. We'd see him in a new and fresh way, and you'd do something special in this gathering for your glory and our joy. Father, I am incapable of doing this in my own strength. This, uh, I need your help. I need your spirit to enable me to do that, and we need that to hear as well. Would you do this in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we began, which is basically a little mini-series in our study of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has made his way into the city of Jerusalem. That's the final city of his life. They're going to claim his life in a few short days. And he went in there, and he went into the temple, and what we saw two weeks ago is Jesus, mild manner, meek Jesus, flipped over tables and made a whip and drove some people out of it. He cursed the whole temple operation for its abuse of the poor. He called it a den of robbers when it should have been a place of prayer. And this led a lot of important people to say, Who do you think you are? Jesus. And Jesus answered them by telling them a story last week that basically said, I am the beloved Son of God. I am the heir of everything. My father owns it all, and I'm the heir. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by my Father in heaven. I am the Son of God. He's uncovered that. He's came out with that. Like he, There was this messianic secret for 10 or 12 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. That messianic secret is no longer. Jesus is out in the open now. I am the Son of God. I have all the authority. And the important people, right, the people who've gotten a little bit of authority, for their own efforts in society, they are now, uh, they respond to that claim by barraging Jesus with questions in an attempt to discredit him. So, today, last week we started that, so we're kind of in a three week series just we're calling Questioning Jesus, okay? Because these people are approaching Jesus now, and they're just going to be peppering him with questions, trying to discredit him. Today we're going to take a look at two of these encounters. Next week, we're going to look at another one. Um, what are the two things that you're not supposed to talk about in a, grou- in a group of diverse people? If you know there's different people from a lot of different backgrounds, what are the two things you're not supposed to talk about? Wow, you actually answered there. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Cool. I was going to tell you, but you told me, right? Religion <laughs> and politics, right? Well, Jesus didn't get that memo, okay? And Jesus is going to talk about politics first, and then he's going to talk about the resurrection or life after death second. <clears throat> what's interesting is that each of these people that come to Jesus to confront him and to question him, they don't do it uh, with this genuine seeker's heart, right? They're not the freshmen in college asking the professor because they're just ignorant and they don't know, right? They're asking questions because they have an agenda, These questions come from a person who is bent to discredit Jesus, not a person looking for answers. And I hope you know there's a big difference there. What we're going to see today is these are carefully crafted questions meant to put Jesus in his place. They are meant to get him into trouble and to ultimately get rid of him. They're meant to discredit him and make him look like a fool. And let me tell you, if you come to Jesus with honest questions... Many of us do. All of us do. If you're struggling with doubts, fears, you're, you're trying to reconcile the goodness of God and something that's really bad that's happened in your life or something you're seeing around you. If you come to Jesus with those questions, man, he welcomes you with those questions. Doubters are welcome around Jesus, right? Doubts are good. Doubts lead us to Jesus to get, quite, to get our questions answered, He's a lamb like that. Nobody's afraid to go up to a lamb, right? Little kids run up to a lamb. Jesus is like that. You you come to him like a lamb and you can approach him and you can ask him your questions and he's, he's going to be soft like that. Scripture says a bruised reed he does not break, a smoldering flax he does not blow out. Jesus is very humble when we come to him in humility. He is very compassionate and understanding with us. But, there's another way to question Jesus that brings out, let's just say, the lion side of Jesus. And there's a very real sense where kids don't run up to a lion, right? Unless it's just laying there doing what they do in the zoo, right? But in the wild, if you go to Africa and you see it, nobody's like, oh, a kitty, right? And Jesus, some things stirred him up, the truth stirred him up, and he would get angry. We've seen Jesus not afraid to get angry. He's fl- nobody's flipping tables with a smile on their face, right? He's angry, but hear this, he's not sinning, and it's not a sin to get angry. Anger, anger is the appropriate response when something that you love has been violated. Anger is the appropriate response. It's not a sinful response, but we can sin in our anger. So Jesus, though, he doesn't just get angry. Jesus also obliterates arguments. He doesn't hem-haw around. He never gets confused. Jesus has humility of heart. You can approach him like a lamb, but he's not humble of mind. He's brilliant. He has no problem, and this might rub us wrong, right? He has no problem making someone look really stupid when they approach him with an argument meant to discredit him, not as a genuine seeker, but meant to make him look bad. He has no problem making that person look really dumb. So, today, a Republican and a Democrat walk into a bar. (laughs) That's basically how we start our sermon, okay? This is what's going on. That's an oversimplification But that's basically how our text begins this week. Some Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus to question him about his politics. What are the politics of Jesus? (laughs) Now, the answer to that question can be answered one or two ways. It can be answered through the Bible, or it can be answered through whoever your politician says. right? Because if if you ask Hillary right now, Hillary would say, Jesus is all about the poor, right? So she's going to answer kind of fiscally. If you answer Ben Carson right now, he's going to answer morally, right? And they're both going to claim Jesus kind of as their origin, right? Or as the one who would be on their side. Now, what this, that's what's happening in this text today. The Pharisees and the Herodians are two sides of a political party in one sense right? They, they represent the two ends of the spectrum. And they're coming to Jesus to ask him about his politics. And everybody thinks they know, but what we're going to see today is very few do. Look at verse 13. And they sent, they is the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is the main legal council For Jerusalem, it was made up of Pharisees, of Sadducees, and scribes. These are the people hell-bent to destroy Jesus because Jesus has robbed them of the authority and the influence in society that they've had for a long time. They are sending these people to them, to Jesus. Some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to what? To trap him in his talk. It's interesting here. Mark says these two co- these two opposing political parties come to Jesus to trap him. See, he's not genuine seekers. This is the only place in the Bible where this word in the Hebrew is used, this word trap. And it's literally what it means is it's it's back in the day or maybe, I don't know if you know if they, they do this anywhere else, but they they used to dig holes I used to try to do this as a kid, actually. They they would dig holes, and then you would put, I wouldn't put spikes in it, but you'd put spikes in the bottom, and then you'd lay like sticks over the top, and, and, and if an animal or your younger brother would walk across these things, they would fall without them knowing in this pit, right? You would catch them unaware, right? You would catch them unaware. Now, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to lay a trap for Jesus that he would step into, he would walk into, he would be caught in his words, and he would fall into this trap, and then that trap would then discredit him or get him killed. These two groups, like I said, were on the ends of the political spectrum, and they come to question Jesus, not as genuine seekers, but as trappers bent on catching him in his words to show him to be a fraud. Look at verse 14. And they came, and they said to him, Teacher, this is just, just rings with, you know, political rhetoric. How do you approach your opponent? Like this. Teacher, we know that you're true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Period. I just have this really humble question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Listen, is it lawful or not? What do they want? They want a yes or a no. Should we pay them or should we not? Give me a yes or no, sir. Give me a yes or no. Jesus. But knowing their hypocrisy. Now let me just stay here. It seems like these people that are coming to Jesus, they know the truth, but they don't believe it. There is nothing going on here but flattery. They're trying to use flattery to bend Jesus or to catch him in his trap. That's the, they're laying the, you know, the good-looking sticks across the hole so he doesn't notice and he walks across and falls in. This is flattery. We know that you speak nothing but the truth. You're not swayed by you know, flattery, what people think of you but we're going to use it anyways to try to trap you. And this just shows like what kind of reputation Jesus had, even with his enemies. That guy, he speaks with authority. He's not bent by other people's opinion. This guy, there's something special about this guy. He doesn't kowtow to anyone's opinion. So they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or not? They want a yes or no answer. Now, if Jesus was a politician, this is hilarious because we all want that, right? Like we all, whoever's the opposing political party, we just want to say, what about this? Yes or no? And then they just backpedal and then they talk for 10 minutes and then you realize they didn't answer your question, right? That's not what Jesus does here, which is brilliant. But we need to do some work to understand why is this even a difficult question? <laughs> and many people make, they think it's not a difficult question. Oh, just pay taxes. Do we pay taxes or not? That's a simple question. And Jesus says, yes, pay taxes. That's not what's going on here at all. This is far more than just a question about should a person pay taxes or not. The tax they're talking about isn't a sales tax. It's not a tax on goods or services. We know this because uh, the tax that they pay is they use a denarius to pay. And we still have denarius. You can go to a museum and you can see a denarius in a museum and one single denarius, that's what they pay the tax with, and one single denarius, which is equivalent to one day's wages, was a tax given to Rome each year for the privilege of being alive. Okay? It was a tax. You were, you were a Roman citizen. You're under the authority of Rome. Congratulations. Pay us this amount. It was. it's been called a head tax just for being alive. And the Jews were being ruled... By Rome. They were kind of a a people inside of a people. They were subjugated by the nation of Rome, or the, the, the empire of Rome. And Rome instituted this tax, not just to get money, of course they wanted money, but not just to get money from the Jews, but to remind them that they're a subjugated people. You're not just Jewish, you're Roman. You're under our authority. You, do, you have the privilege of your religious rights because you're under the authority of Rome. You owe us allegiance. This tax was such a slap in the face that when it was first instituted, basically about 25 years before this text was written, before, or before Jesus had this encounter, um, it, it caused the Jewish people to have a revolt led by a man named Judas the Galilean. He was a zealot and he raised up a bunch of people and he said we're not going to pay this tax to Rome. We're going to be our own people. We're not going to be under them. We're not going to worship Caesar. We're not going to do that. And what happened? Rome took them out. Rome killed Judas the Galilean. Rome squashed the rebellion and they've been paying tax this tax now for 25 years. See, they made a statement. Rome did. Pay the tax or die. Pay your allegiance to Caesar or die. Well, the Pharisees hated that. They hated the tax and they wanted to be their own people out from under pagan Roman rulership. They were waiting for a king to show up who would lead a new rebellion that would actually defeat Rome instead of Rome defeating them. But the Herodians, they were complicit with Rome. See, the Herodians liked the parts of Rome, you know, the paganism of Rome and the freedom of Rome and the uh, sexual expression of Rome and all the benefits that Rome gave them. The Herodians were on the opposite end of the spectrum. They enjoyed being under Rome, so they gladly paid the tax. And Jesus now is approached by a Pharisee and 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 the Herodians who come to him and they put him smack dab in the middle of a hot button issue of Jesus' day. Should we pay the tax or not? He says, yes, one group wants to rebel. He says, no, the other group wants to rebel. This is meant to be an impossible question. It's meant to be a trap. If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, he is seen as complicit with Rome and the Jews turn on him. He's accepting pagan rulership. If he says, no, the Romans will kill him for being another Judas, the Galilean, and leading an insurrection. See, the Jewish Sanhedrin, no doubt, they had been scheming for days behind closed doors what is the perfect question to trap this guy in? How do we get out from under this guy's authority? And the most brilliant minds of Jesus' day sat in a room and concocted this question. This is kind of like a question like, have you stopped beating your wife? Like, there's no way you can answer that without getting in trouble. (laughs) Yes, I've stopped. Well, that means you used to do it right? You're in trouble. No, I haven't stopped. That means you are in a lot of trouble, right? This is one of those questions. There there is no yes or no answer without getting in a lot of trouble. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he got that a little bit later, but that was good. But knowing their hypocrisy, hey, sometimes it goes out, comes right back, hits you in the back of the head. That's all right. But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? So Jesus knows it's not a genuine question. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus sees right through their trap. He says they're hypocrites, which in that day and age literally meant an actor on a stage. A person who would wear a mask and perform, say their things, but not really mean them in their heart. Right? That's what a hypocrite is. Somebody who says the right things, but they don't mean it. Jesus, you're not swayed by appearances. Jesus, you only speak the truth. They're saying it, but they've got a mask on. Jesus calls them hypocrites. <clears throat> He's not swayed by their flattery, nor is he tripped up. Jesus isn't like, oh that was the one question I don't have an answer for. Oh, it's just a mystery. He doesn't do it. He says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. He says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? Now, this is so fascinating. The coin that was paid for the privilege of existing and being in the Roman Empire on one side bore the head of Caesar. And With it, in Latin, the abbreviated inscription was this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, son of God, Augustus. On the reverse side of the coin, and we still have these around, was the inscription chief priest in Latin. See, Caesar fashioned himself, like almost all rulers in that day and age did, as a god. He didn't just want your money. He wanted your worship. He wanted your loyalty. He wanted your devotion and your heart. He called himself the high priest, and a high priest is a person who goes between mankind and God. He called himself son of God, Augustus. Now, what's interesting is, are these coins actually belong to him? They were, they were minted out of his own wealth. right? Goes to his coffers. He mints his own, go- his own gold coins, puts his face on it. That's the currency we're going to use in the Roman Empire. I want everyone to say, in God we trust, and by God I mean me. Right? Augustus is saying that. Jesus here says, he's in this possible question, Possible question: Yes, give me a yes or no. What should I do? Pay taxes to this tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, "Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God." See, Jesus is saying those coins—they're already his. They got his face on them. Give that coin to him. But give to God what belongs to God. Now what that should ask, we should ask a question there. What belongs to God? Or or what has God's image on it? See, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's answering this question in such a way that everyone is answered and yet no one is answered, kind of. Right? Everyone is answered but everyone is also offended. He's saying, give this coin to Caesar. It's his anyways. But don't give to Caesar what he really wants, and that's worship. Don't call him God. Don't call him high priest. Don't give him your heart. Don't give him your love. Don't give him your worship. You belong to God. Give to God what belongs. Give all that, all the worship, love, give all that to God. Give the coin to Caesar, but give yourself God. See, in the book of Genesis, it says that man and woman are made a mago day. They're made in the image of God. This coin had the image of Caesar on it. You have the image of God on it. And so Jesus, brilliantly blowing the mind of the smartest men of his day, he says, "Give the coin to Caesar. Give your worship to God. Give your love and allegiance to God, because." You're made in his image. Verse 16. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription the is They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus walks right across the trap. Jesus aces the test, and they, oh never thought of it like that before. They marveled at him. What are the politics of Jesus? Everybody wants a yes or a no. Jesus won't give it to you. If you think he's a Republican, you're wrong. If you think he's a Democrat, you're wrong. Are there issues on both sides that Jesus would say, in this instance, I agree with Republicans? Absolutely. Are there instances in the. On in this instance, I'm going to. Yes. Is he all out one or the other? Absolutely not. And if you think he is, then you've fashioned Jesus into your own likeness and not into who he really is here. He doesn't give us yes and no answers like that when it comes to this. Here's the politics of Jesus Jesus is Lord and Caesar's not. Jesus is Lord, and nothing or no one else is. Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat. He's not even an American. <laughs> the kingdom of God does not look like white, middle-class, suburban America. America. And if you think that it does... You fashioned Jesus and his kingdom into your image, your neighborhood's image, and not into, not from the word of God. Now, I I really wanted to preach a whole sermon on that. And you're like, you just did, I think. I'm like, no, that's only half a sermon, actually. Because we got another encounter. Here we go. Let's look at the next encounter. And Sadducees, verse 18, and Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Okay, now listen. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're the two prominent factions in Israel in Jesus' day. Okay, we just saw the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both on the Sanhedrin council. They're Jewish rulers. The Herodians didn't really have anything to do with the religious side. They were politics, but not how they did religion. Pharisees and the Sadducees are how they did religion. The Sadducees, you, interestingly enough, they only accepted the authority of the Torah. Okay, that, what's the Torah? The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are, were accepted by the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were like super strict. They're kind of like... I only use the King James Bible, like one of those people, right? I like saying thou a lot, right? Okay. Uh, they only wanted the Torah. They only accepted the Torah. And the Pharisees accepted all the Old Testament, the prophets and the, you know, the Psalms. And the Pharisees also welcomed in what's called oral tradition. They made up 600 different rules that aren't in the Bible. Okay? The Pharisees did. They liked their rules. And, they, and the Sadducees, they rejected all of that. And one of the things the Sadducees rejected was any idea of the spiritual realm. Sadducees rejected demons, angels, um, life after death, the resurrection. The Sadducees rejected all of it. And the Pharisees didn't, obviously. So what happens here is the Sadducees again behind closed doors, no doubt, have created this brilliant argument that seems like it's unanswerable from the Torah, and it's this really convoluted, complex argument about, it's called Leverite marriage and life after death. And let me kind of get into that. Leverite marriage was introduced in Deuteronomy 25, and this is what it was, okay? Um, Back in the day, mostly in agrarian society, if you're, you know, you get married really early, you've got kids, uh, not because you love them and, and they're so special, but because you need farm hands, right? That's why you have a lot of kids. And when they die, you go, oh, make another one, let's do this, you know, a lot of work to do, make another one. Um, but what, what happened is if the husband died, if the husband died, that left the wife, right, as a widow, Unable to run the farm, right? Unable to make money, unable to provide for the family. So what Moses did is he instituted this thing called Leverite marriage and he said, here's the the deal. If you die, or if your husband dies, his brother, as long as he's not married, his brother marries into the family, and now he takes care of the widow, right? He takes care of the family. It was a way to provide for the least of these. It was a way to provide for widows, right? They couldn't just go down to the office, down at the state office and apply for Medicaid or Medicare or welfare or whatever. They couldn't couldn't do that. So this was the way to provide for that. Now, what the Sadducees are doing is they're taking that concept and they're trying to show how ridiculous the idea of an afterlife is. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make Jesus look stupid and make the idea of the spiritual world or the afterlife look ridiculous. So let's keep reading in verse 19. Here's their argument, another question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Here's the question. There were seven brothers. The first now let's just stop here. This is like a hypothetical, okay? This is a hypothet- this isn't like a real instance, right? This I don't know if this ever happened. I seriously doubt this ever happened, right? But this is a hypothetical situation. Let's keep going. There were seven brothers. The first t- took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third, likewise. And this, first off, the reason I think this is hypothetical, because by the fourth time, the dude's like, absolutely not. <laughs> her cooking must be horrible, right? Like, like, this is like, this is where the definition of a black widow, like, where did this come from? Like, there's something wrong with a woman, God. Something wrong with her. All right. This is hypothetical, okay? Uh, and the seven left no offspring, Last of all, the woman died. So this woman is married seven times to seven different brothers and they've concocted this argument and they think it makes, you know, Christianity and the idea of the afterlife look absolutely ridiculous. Now, I love this because so many of my friends do this to me, okay? I have all kinds of friends, atheists, agnostics, um, you know, all, all kinds of people. And this is kind of like the college professor who says something like this to his college freshman, and it's the freshman sitting there, like, oh, he's so smart. And, and like, if there was another college professor in the room, he'd be like, why'd you do that? That's ignorant, right? Here's the answer to that argument that you've had. But college freshmen are sitting there, like, oh, right? They got no idea. It's the most brilliant concept in the world. Do I even exist? Yeah, I should think about that a lot. That's the kind of question that they've got here. I joke, this is kind of like... So the Sadducees, they, they're a materialist. It's funny. They're, they're much like atheists in our day and age. They believe this world is all there is. We're matter. Bumping around with each other. And when we die, we die. There's nothing else. Very much like many of us live today. They believe this world was all there was, and you ceased to to exist after death so they come up with this argument this argument is very it's similar like did Adam and Eve have belly buttons it's that type of question and you're like oh who cares is the right answer right <laughs> but whatever it's a trap laid for Jesus they want Jesus to look stupid and the idea of the afterlife to look stupid either Jesus says Like they ask this question, and you know, like the college freshman. You're right. It was a dumb question. It was. You're right. The idea of the afterlife is dumb. Oh my gosh! It looks so silly. Christianity can't be true. That's so ridiculous, right? Or, right? So, so if Jesus does that. If he agrees with him, you're right, it's really silly. The idea of an afterlife is really silly. Which husband, you know, will she have? Oh, this, you got me. So dumb. And then everybody who believes in the afterlife gets really offended and walks away from Jesus. Or, this is funny, or Jesus actually tries the answer and s- tries to answer the question in some weird convoluted way. Like, well, the, 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 the first husband would be married to her because he was the first Or the seventh, because the seventh number is the perfect number, and everybody knows that the perfect number equals... And he's trying to connect some weird kind of dots theologically. And then everybody's like... And they watch him make a fool of himself. Right? That's what they're trying to do, set up this kind of scenario. He's going to look stupid one way or another. And look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, (laughs) Is this not the reason you're wrong? Now, I just love that. And I did that one time as a young man to my boss. It didn't work out well. I, he asked me a question, or he said something, and I said, well, let me tell you why you're wrong. And I, it's just not, that's an arrogant like young man thing. Like, not, I wouldn't recommend that, but if you are the son of God, go with it. <laughs> so Jesus, the son of God, goes, oh, like, professor, brilliant question. Let me tell you why you're wrong with your question. I love it. This is what he says. Let me tell you, Why? You're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, these guys, they only had five books of the Bible, Torah. They memorized them. Memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what they did growing up in school. They knew their scriptures better than we do, better than most people do. And Jesus says... Here's why you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. That's like telling a PhD in mathematics that his simple math is off. Right? Your multiplication's off there, bud. Jesus is rebuking them for not understanding the scriptures, the very thing they claimed they were experts in. They thought they had a brilliant question. And Jesus just blows it up. Your whole premise is, is wrong. Your logic is off. You don't even make sense. You think you're smart, but you're ignorant. Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says. He's going to use the five books of the Bible that they accept. He's going to use the books that they're experts in to prove to them they don't know what they're talking about. Right? Here's what happens. Uh for when they rise, so he's talking about resurrection, and resurrection, listen, resurrection isn't just going to heaven when you die, okay? Resurrection isn't just life after death. Resurrection, we call it around here, we say what a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, resurrection is life after life after death, okay? It's when Jesus got up out of the grave, and he had a physical body, and he went to heaven with a physical body and he's coming to earth in a physical body. It's not spiritual life after you die, okay? It's a completely reconstituted physical body after you die. Jesus says this. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now stop. Let me squash something that our culture says all the time when people die they do not become angels Jesus is not you know like a football scout looking for angels people are like oh she passed away Jesus needed another angel no he's not drafting grandma okay he's not he doesn't need angels, right? Oh, I need a, I need a new tackle. Who's a tackle down there? Right. We need a cornerback. Oh, he's got a, I need a cornerback. He's not doing that. We don't become angels when we die. He's using angels as in an analogy with marriage. Angels aren't married. Angels don't get married. In heaven, in the new creation, we won't be married either. What? Now, why is that? Marriage is a metaphor for God's love for us. The intensity of marriage, the, um, just the rapture, right, of marriage, the, the sexual, uh, you know, just ex- you know that, that, I don't even know how to describe it right now, that explosive, that passion, that, there's the word I want, the passion of marriage, the commitment of marriage, all of those are signs of what heaven is going to be like. Better than the best sex. Deeper the most lifelong commitment and love. Heaven's going to be like that, but it's not just with one person. It's with God himself and with all of God's new created order. That kind of love and rapture and excitement ever increasing day after day, moment after moment after moment. So Jesus says, angels don't get married, so your question is dumb. When they go to heaven, you know, the... the (laughs) the brothers aren't throwing dice in heaven. Like, who's going to get her? Wrong. Nobody, but everybody. Because in heaven, we're all united in this world of love. And Jesus uses here the Torah to prove them to prove them wrong. Look, he says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, this is one of the books that they talk about, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. When God spoke this to Moses, those men were already dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all already dead. But when God speaks to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I I am, not I was, the God. It's a brilliant argument that Jesus has. In the moment, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. And he says, I, he is not the God of the dead, but he is God of the living. You are, and he ends it like this, you are quite wrong. <laughs> that is a mic drop, okay? That's what that kind of statement is. You are quite wrong. Now, Jesus speaks the truth. Jesus has been questioned and put to the test by experts on the left and right of the political spectrum. He's been questioned and put on the test by the left and the right of the religious spectrum, and he has stumped them both. Jesus is the smartest man to ever live. He doesn't bend or buckle under pressure. He doesn't get stumped or confused. He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth and try to win the liberals and the moderates and the conservatives by changing his message to fit with them. He speaks the truth. And people respond one way or the other. Let me tell you, all of this is happening on Tuesday of Holy Week. That means Jesus is going to be crucified in three days. Is this how you would spend your last Tuesday on earth? arguing with people who want to discredit you. I'll be honest. My friends, if I'm in a good mood and they bring their arguments to me, I like to argue with them a little bit. I like to you know, show them how Christ- Christianity is very logical and, and, and we can argue all these things out. I like to. But if I'm like in a bad mood and they're bringing me these dumb arguments, what I think is just dumb arguments, did Adam and Eve have belly button arguments? Like my buddy said, hey, if they find li- life on Mars, will that change your way of thinking? I'm just like, no, what the heck? I'm like, I just, I don't have time for this right now. Your last Tuesday on earth and you're going to spend your time arguing with Republicans and Democrats, right? You're going to spend your time arguing with liberals and Amish people, basically, right? Left, right, right, whatever. Like, really? Like, I, that's not how I want to spend the last Tuesday of my life. But Jesus here is patient in the midst of this terrible Tuesday, why? Why is Jesus so patient? Why does he never lose his cool? He flipped his tables over on the religious establishment, but when people come to question him, even like this, try to trap him, he doesn't flip the tables or grab them, right? He doesn't. I think the answer is right there in Jesus' reply to the Sadducees. He told them they're wrong because they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. Jesus can stay patient in the midst of this terrible Tuesday because he both understands the scriptures and he's experienced the power of God. Jesus knows, listen to this, that he is going to give to God what belongs to God. In three days, he's going to give his life. Isaiah prophesied 650 years earlier in chapter 53 of his book that all people everywhere have, like sheep, gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, God, will lay the iniquity of all of us, all of our guiltiness, will be laid upon Jesus like a sheep every sin we have ever committed or ever will commit will be laid on Jesus in a few days from this encounter right here. Jesus is the lamb that's on his way being led to the slaughter. But this lamb is unique. This lamb is a lamb who will die but will not stay dead. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That means Jesus knew he had to die. It was preordained and predestined, and he agreed to do it. He was totally willing to come from heaven and to live a perfect life, and then to to die in our place as substitutionary sacrifice But Jesus also knew that wasn't the end of the story. You're not just coming, living perfectly, and then going to die. You're coming, you're going to live perfectly, die a brutal death, but then you're going to be resurrected to new life and be exalted to the right hand of the Father by the power of God. See, Jesus knew the scriptures and the power. God can kill me and God can raise me up to new life. I'll do it. See, Caesar... Claimed to be powerful. Caesar claimed to be a high priest and a son of God. But when Caesar died, Caesar stayed dead. Jesus is the true son of God who would die and then live again. I love this verse. Hebrews 7.16 says this, God has made Jesus our high priest, not Caesar, Jesus is our high priest by the power of, of an indestructible life. That's what Hebrews 7.16 says. Did you hear that? Jesus had the power of an indestructible life. Kill him. He gets back up. He knew the scriptures. I have to die. He knew the power. I won't stay dead. This is how he endured the cross. Do you know that power? Hear me. Christianity isn't just something you take into your mind. You don't just assent and and check off the box. Did Jesus die for your sins? Check. It's not just something you think about. It's something you know and it's something you read. It's a power at work in you. It's a power that changes you in the moment. Listen to how Isaiah describes the outcome of this power of God, what what God did on the cross in Jesus. He says, out of the anguish, in Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of Jesus or his soul, this is Jesus, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, God planned the cross, and I am closing, God planned the cross, It was the only way to reconcile sinful people and a holy God. Jesus agreed to go to the cross, and on the cross, all of our iniquities, all of our sins were placed on Jesus. And Jesus experienced absolute anguish in his soul. And yet, God accepted the payment for our sins. God saw it and was satisfied, Isaiah says. And listen to this, we aren't just forgiven because of the cross. It says we're counted righteous. Not just you're not on his bad list, you're on his good list, right? Not just, you know, you're in detention and you're failing classes, now you're on the honor roll. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done, you've been counted righteous. All the good deeds of Jesus have been, the word is, imputed To us counted as if they were our own sticking with Hebrews this means because of this we can now give to God what's God's we can now offer our bodies up as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is our spiritual worship the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ power to change power to live differently Power to have an indestructible life that if you're in Christ, when, they, when you die and they put you in the ground, you won't stay dead. You will live again. This is the hope we have as Christians. If you've never heard this before, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity. Christianity is not like other world religions that say, come do these things and God will accept you. Christianity is the opposite of every other world religion All right, every single one. Christianity says God came down, lived the life you couldn't live, died the death that you deserve to give you this power, to give you this new life. Listen how Peter says it in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, listen to this, he has caused us to be born again. Caused us. He did it. You didn't didn't cause yourself to be born again. God causes us to be born again. Listen, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What do we get? What for? To an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. What's he saying? This is what he's saying. Why, if you believe in Jesus Christ, why? Because he caused you to, be, to believe in Jesus Christ. Some of you in this room this morning, God might be causing you right now to be born again. You might, for the first time in your life, say, this sounds logical, This sounds good. I think I might believe this. I think maybe I'll try out this Christianity thing. If you are, it's because God's moving on your heart. And for those who are already in Christ, why are you a Christian? Not because you walked an aisle. Not because you prayed a sinner's prayer. Not because you felt really guilty at camp that one summer and you went down. But because God in heaven caused you to be born again. And why are you still a Christian? Because by the power of God in you, he's keeping you. His power starts salvation. His power works in salvation. His power finishes salvation, beginning and end, all God. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And we can know with certainty that we will live forever with him by his power when we, by his power now, respond to him. We get to live forever in, a, in his world of love. No more sin, no more sickness, no more disease, no more wars. The greatest days of your marriage if you're married, the greatest days, the most intense love will just be a memory, a bad memory compared to heaven. Marriage is just a metaphor for the reality we will experience in heaven. Now, this is a unique day because we are celebrating that power of God that saves people, makes them like Jesus, and eventually will cause us to be resurrected like him. And we celebrate that through baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal of that reality that people go, they're buried in the waters like Christ was buried, and they're ra- raised to new life. Now, this doesn't do anything. Like, doesn't save people. It's a, it's a sign of what God does by faith. And so let me just tell you this. We're about to do this, and we're gonna profess our faith together through the Apostles' Creed. And if you are in this room, and you say, I think I am a Christian, and I haven't been baptized. I think I believe what you're saying but I've never been baptized, Jesus tells us to believe and to be baptized, that if we're adults and we come to faith, we're to follow Jesus, and by the power of God, we're supposed to get baptized. Now listen, you might, we've got a couple being baptized this morning, they've planned it. You didn't. You maybe didn't even plan on being here. We have clothes in the back. We have towels for you. I'm sure some of the grandmas in the room can have makeup in their purse if you need makeup. To fix it, right? We got some of that. Whatever. Listen, if you want to be baptized and follow Jesus, we want you to be baptized. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. We don't let anyone take the Lord's Supper who hasn't been baptized. Baptism is the entrance into God's church, okay? The Lord's Supper is the renewal of that covenant. So we want you to believe and to be baptized. If you have not been baptized, uh, if you want to be baptized, you can Go in the back. My assistant will be in the back right now. They can walk you through that, help you through that. I know it's, you might feel a lot of pressure and embarrassed, uh, but if not, we've already got a couple that are going to be baptized and we're going to move forward to that. Let me pray and, we're gonna, and then you can go out and we're going to uh, celebrate the sacrament of baptism. Jesus, I thank you for being the Son of God and not staying in heaven but coming to this earth. Um, you know what it feels like to have impossible, ignorant questions asked of you? You know what it feels like to be in a moment um, three days from death, probably the most stressful, anxiety-producing week of your life, obviously, and to have people antagonistically pressuring you and trying to trip you up, how exhausting that had to have been. You know what it feels like. And yet you did it, and you aced every test. And you showed us wisdom from above. You showed us truth. And you showed us how foolish the Sadducees were. And it's because three days later you were, you were crucified and then three days later you were, you were resurrected from the dead. And you showed yourself to over 500 people who confirmed it. And men who rejected you, men who ran away from you, men who persecuted those who followed you, converted because they saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus. This is history, this is fact, this is reality. The power of God can save even the most hardened skeptic. And I pray this morning that you would do that through the power of your spirit in this room and that you would give us the faith to believe and that we would uh, turn from our sins and turn to you and we would rejoice in the sign and the seal of baptism and dedication that you've given us this morning. Uh, We pray all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.